investment is a completely different ball game it's about pitching your story it's about having a grand vision it's about really kind of selling your business to someone else beyond just the, the financials i mean financials was a strong point but not the storytelling aspect Brand Growth Heroes is the business podcast for the founders of food, beverage, and other consumer goods brands, and is ranked in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Oddbox is primarily a D2C company offering consumers boxes of fruit and veg and other products at risk of waste in order to try and change the world to a place where all food grown is eaten. I'm lucky enough to have worked closely with the founders, Deepak and Emily, so I asked them to come on the show and tell us about their passion for encouraging UK consumers to eat in a more sustainable way. They tell me how they came up with the idea for Oddbox, how they tested it for six weeks with 20 customers, and how then they grew the business to over 32 million just six years later. We also talk about their key relationships with their growers, the importance of managing supply chain and ensuring excellent customer experience, and what their plans to double that growth is over the next five years. Emily and Deepak of Oddbox, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us, Fiona. Likewise, grateful to be here. Listen, it's absolutely brilliant. It's great to meet you, Emily. Obviously, Deepak, we know each other quite well because we've worked together and you're part of our alumni group on WhatsApp. Can you take our listeners back to the beginning? How did you come up with the idea for Oddbox? Yeah, so uh, obviously, as you can hear, I'm not from uh, the UK, neither is Deepak. So I grew up originally in the north of France. My grandparents on both sides were potato farmers, but I never really worked on the farm and didn't know anything about the issue of food waste until six years ago. And so uh, Deepak is from India and the uh, both in France and in India, there's a lot more seasonality in terms of the produce that what, than what we see uh, in the UK. And so uh, I, we used to grow our own produce. We had a big veg plot. And when we came to the UK, we were both uh, amazed by the fact that you can get everything all year round in the UK. But uh, strawberries in winter don't really taste of anything. So uh, it gets quite disappointed when you get this um, produce which don't really have a taste. I can imagine coming from France, you're used to tomatoes that taste like tomatoes and strawberries that taste like strawberries, particularly in the north of France. And then you've got these watery red things that really genuinely don't taste of anything. That must be a massive disappointment. Deepak, what about you? What was your experience growing up? Yeah, look, you know, when I was in India, I used to get mangoes just three months in a year. It used to be the most deliciously tasting mangoes. But I never remember looking at uh, something and going, that looks perfect. It was, does it look, does it taste amazing? Uh, It's perfect, seasonal, ripe, um, full of nutrients, bursting of flavor kind of produce. Uh, And for me, it was a bit of a shock coming here where you could get everything all the time, perfect looking stuff, um, a lot of stress on how it looks rather than how it tastes, which is quite a surprise as well. Which is totally backwards, right? Yeah. But actually, uh, at that time, we uh, didn't really do anything about it. Kind of went on with our life, with our work. And uh, it's just five years later when we went on holiday to Portugal, 
again, when you go to main to kind of Southern Europe, uh, every morning you get up, you go to the local market and you choose what you're going to eat for lunch. And so there was these uh, tomatoes, which were ugly, uh, different uh, colors, uh, uh, really kind of uh, very ripe, but they tasted amazing. And that kind of made us uh, uh, think, why uh, can't we get such tomatoes in the UK? And that's when really we started looking a bit more into uh, food supply chain and trying to understand what was so different in the UK and why um, we couldn't get this kind of produce. And that's uh, uh, then that we realized that there was uh, over 40% of the food we produce being wasted uh, overall and never consumed. And the fact that there's uh, very strict criteria in terms of uh, the uh, size, uh, shape, uh, uh, color, and uh, cosmetic specification of produce. And we thought uh, that's just crazy that uh, um, uh, we've become uh, so used to seeing uh, produce in a specific way that uh, we uh, can't uh, accept anything else. Quick one. I'm thrilled to share that Strong Roots is continuing their support of Brand Growth Heroes for another season. Finding quick and easy meal solutions that are also better for you can be a real challenge for busy families like mine. That's where Strong Roots comes in for us. Their veg-packed frozen foods make it incredibly easy to enjoy delicious plant-based meals that everyone in my family loves, whilst doing a little good for the planet too. We love their sweet potato fries, crispy cauliflower hash browns and yummy spinach bites. Honestly, their products are a lifesaver for us on busy weeknights. What's even more important, though, is that Strong Roots is committed to using clean ingredients that are better for you and better for the planet. They're actually one of the pioneers in terms of having their carbon cloud on the front of pack for full transparency of their impact on the planet. And as a B Corp, they're committed to improving this number, as well as all the ways they do business. I've been fortunate enough to work with Strong Roots since 2016, and I'm proud to support a company that's always striving to do better. So head to the freezer aisle and try Strong Roots for yourself. Don't forget to look at their ingredients on the back of pack. I think you'll be as surprised as I was at just how clean, tasty, frozen food can actually be. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you, good for the planet, good made easy. At this point, you guys had met, where did you meet originally? And how did you end up in the UK? Just so we can fill people in. Right, so we originally met in 2002, it was, 2004, I think, uh, when we were colleagues uh, working in a American company called 3M, who do Scotch brides, funnily enough. And we were finance, corporate finance colleagues then. That was in India. That was in India. Okay, okay. So you both have a finance background. Correct, yes. exactly. Oh, that's got to help. Yeah, well, to, 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 to a large degree, because you know, finance is a big part of running a business. Um, and then we came to the UK in 2009. I was working in investment banking. Um, Emily started working in British Telecom, but then she quickly moved away to, to the charity sector, predominantly kind of to make a make a difference, uh, work on something with purpose. Um, and then I, I suppose uh, I had enough of banking um, after working a few years there. So I, I made the jump from uh, banking to doing something else. So Deepak, Emily speaks about this moment when you heard about the, the fact that 40% of all food generated is wasted in the UK. How did you feel when you heard that? Because I know you're really, really passionate about this, about making a difference in terms of food waste, both of you. For us, we thought, uh, uh, actually, there's a huge opportunity. Um, so it was very much, uh, this, uh, we're spending so much 
our growers spend so much time, money, uh, energy in growing produce that we don't consume. There, uh, we we knew as consumers we would be happy to uh, eat uh, any types of produce, even if it doesn't look perfect. So we thought we're probably not the only ones. And uh, then when we looked at um, other countries, there was a big campaign by a French supermarket around ugly fruit and veg. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, you found the Winsick install here in the UK was uh, with uh, kind of waving the war on waste. So that understanding was starting to uh, emerge. And in the US, there were two startups what started something very similar to Outbox. So uh, we thought maybe now is the right time to uh, do something about it. Uh, consumers are willing to uh, be open about that. And uh, so uh, initially, Outbox started a bit more like a, a weekend project of uh, uh, getting the produce from the uh, wholesale market um, and delivering to uh, our neighborhood. I think for me, from my perspective, um, there was always this big word, sustainability, and it meant several things for several people. Is it local? Is it organic? Is it, uh, what is it? And for me, I think coming from India where, you know, you don't get everything all the time, uh, things are expensive, you don't you don't have the luxury of being in a first world country. I think for me, resourceful living and making the most of things that are already there um, resonated a lot, uh, purely because it was, for me, waste was not this separate thing that you go and do. Waste is just normal. You shouldn't be having waste. You should be, you know, you should be utilizing what you already have. So... For me, food waste was this thing to to kind of there's an opportunity here to make the most of your resources that are finite, um, that are not um, you don't have this infinite kind of um, pot to dip into. So I think that resonated a lot in terms of practicality of of making the most of uh, resources. Yeah, like living in a different way. So making this change amongst consumers in the UK that they would live a different way, a more sustainable way for the planet. So what did that first product look like? What did the first odd box look like? And talk us through then, maybe Deepak, how did it move from that very first box, whatever that looked like, to the next stage of growth when you had a website or whatever the next stage of growth was? So in November 2015, um, I believe it was, we decided to test the market and we launched a six-week prepaid trial for twenty customers. Oh, nice, small, small. Yeah, test the idea. We didn't. We we knew. We thought it was a great idea, obviously. But then we wanted to understand if people were actually willing to pay for it. So we started working with a couple of wholesale market growers, uh, predominantly because again there was a lot of naivety involved. We thought we would just go to growers uh, and then ask them, right? Can you just send us this? But, you know, wonky looking produce and we could uh, and, and ship it to our flat. We didn't have a warehouse then. Easy, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what we thought, uh, you know, obviously clearly that was not uh, practical. Farmers. We realized yeah. that farmers grow and they don't take care of the logistics. So if we wanted produce from lots of different growers, we would need to have, we would need to go to pick it up and uh, produce are grown. So each grower will be specialized in different type of produce. So apples are grown in Kent. Um, lean culture is uh, very famous for all the uh, brassicas and root veg. And nobody was really interested in shipping us a few cases. So for them, they were talking in, in uh, pallet loads. So we approached a couple of wholesale market growers, uh, traders who also were growers, 
and who understood the concept and they said, oh, this, this, is, this is a nice area, you know, happy to kind of uh, work with you. And then we, uh, you know, went with many customers. Um, we were storing a lot of the initial produce in our flat on the, on the terrace. Uh, it, was, it was cold. So, uh, you know, health and safety be damned at that point in time. We didn't know about all that. Um, and then we um, just de- would deliver, make big boxes of fruit and veg in on the on the ground in the wholesale market. So we go to the wholesale market, collect all the produce, put that into boxes on the ground, and then just tape that um, uh, with a with a with an old kind of sticker. It used to be called Tasty Misfits. Then, just uh, if you're interested in maybe a not odd not odd box. Okay, Tasty Misfits, another great brand name. Yeah. yeah, not not sure. I think uh, 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 that's another story. But we realized that uh, Misfits was already trademark, and so uh, that forced us to change our name, which in hindsight was uh, a good uh, uh, a good decision. Yeah, and then we would deliver it ourselves to customers in Southwest London. That's how we started. So again, we want to test the market. We didn't want to be nationwide from day one. We wanted to test the market in Southwest London, where we were based. And so how did you know that it was working? So firstly, I think the proof point was when 20 customers prepaid for six weeks. And those customers came through friends, family, people around network. Um, we didn't kind of go and advertise somewhere. We did print a few flyers, um, again, cheaply made via Canva. And then we door delivered them or stood outside the tube station to deliver them in Ballon, where we used, where we still live. Um, and that's how it was our kind of first marketing or first uh, sales proof point. Amazing. So from 20 customers then, what was the next stage then? So people reordered, I presume. What happened then? So then it was, so that was only a six-week trial. And then uh, we realized uh, it's not scalable, uh, not to have a warehouse. So we need to find a solution for parking the boxes. And so Deepak went around the neighborhood to local churches and community halls to see whether we could get free space to use. So we were actually, uh, because the wholesale market is open only overnight. And at that time, I was still working full time. We were doing the uh, packing on Saturday early morning and then delivery. And so once we found that warehouse, then we restarted um, again with 20, 30 customers and then scaled from there. But when he said that warehouse, it's literally a church yeah. on the road that where we used to live. And, you know, I've spoke to all these churches and they all said, oh, they don't have space, they have insurance issues and so on. It's just one church on the same road. And he said, the pastor said, well, you can give me some fruit and veg or I can share that to the community and we'll give you some space, which is great. Um, and that was great. So we would go to the wholesale market at one o'clock in the morning, bring the produce back to the church back uh, the good, you know the produce in the boxes at about 5 a.m. in the morning and we would deliver it from 5 to 9 on yeah. Saturday morning. And then we got a few uh, drivers, so through Gumtree, advertising we needed drivers to deliver. So people uh, who were doing uh, Uber or any of other um, uh, passenger uh, pickups, uh, some van uh, drivers who wanted additional work. And that's how we kind of started to scale. So how big did it get at that point before you started need to investing in a proper website and uh, social media marketing and, you know, a team? We had a website from the start. So because people needed to subscribe through the website, but that was just an off-the-shelf website that we built ourselves. And then we redid the website 
um, uh, nine months uh, into uh, launching uh, using uh, a small uh, two uh, brand freelance brand designers. I think I think it would be important to point out at this point in time that we didn't have a lot of money, so it is all bootstrap. So we spent thirty pounds on our first tasty Miss logo. We spent three hundred pounds on our first odd box logo, and there was no branding at that point in time or limited knowledge. Meant branding clearly. That was a logo, right? And that's it. There's nothing else. Um, we didn't probably we didn't even have a tagline. I don't remember. No, we, we, I don't think we had a tagline. Yeah. And also we were uh, printing, so the boxes were not uh, branded. So we had uh, uh, designed ourselves and printed just uh, some uh, um, stickers that we were using to close the boxes. We were writing what was uh, the uh, box type. Uh, uh, with uh, uh, ourselves. So there was no real branding. But I think there's some value in that as well, that uh, if if the product works at the end, people buy a product and we needed to make sure that the proposition and the product worked more than the branding. So uh, we could have spent a lot of money just thinking about the brand, thinking about the marketing, uh, and then launch a product uh, which actually had a great branding, had a great marketing story, but uh, uh, wasn't something that people wanted. So it was, it wasn't really by design that we do did that, uh, but it was more because we were ignorant uh, about uh, uh, the power of uh, branding and marketing. I think there's a great coherence between what you offered, which was a box of rescued fruit and veg. At that point, was it wonky or was it rescued or was it both? Because I know that there's a difference between wonky and rescued, isn't there, Deepak, that you're quite passionate about? Yeah, I think at the start, people associated with the word wonky. So we were leading with wonky. Now, we our initial marketing efforts were all centered around these flyers that we were printing local markets that we would visit, me and Emily would, um, you know, man the stall. And a lot of customers would then, uh, it would be a hook to say, oh, it's wonky veg delivered to your door. Um, Initially, it was only wonky. And then we realized that uh, there's food waste is not only uh, generated just because produce are uh, wonky or and also wonky is uh, people were expecting that uh, it would look very different. Um, cosmetic specifications are very much about uh, size and uh, as well. So uh, too big, too small is a main reason for produce uh, being um, uh, rejected by uh, retail rather than re- being really wonky. So for us, it was the evolution and there's a lot of uh, issues with surplus. So we evolved from just being about wonky to being about uh, there's uh, too much of something or there's a reason, different reasons why, why produce might uh, end up as surplus and wonky is one of the reasons. One of them. All right. So it's much bigger. So at this point in time, your revenue is £32 million. You've reached over half a million UK households. How did the business get to be that size? And I know that you've got plans to be much, much bigger and really be household name across the UK with very high household penetration. How did it get to the size? What were the big jumps? Because obviously at one point, Emily, you must have had to give up work and take that leap. What were the big leaps and what were the proof points that you said this is the right thing to do and this is the safe, risk-free thing for us to do as a family? Yeah, so I think the first two years, like we were mentioning um, previously, we were, we were bootstrapped. So it was all about um, small movements, test different areas. So we had this 
geo uh, uh, expansion strategy where we went into different geos in London first and then started building a waiting list on the site to understand whether there was proof uh, where people were willing to buy or even express the intent to buy beyond the areas we were operating in. But so, but I think uh, one of the, so initially it was really, really slow and we were losing uh, in some ways as many customers as we were gaining because uh, sometimes the quality wasn't right. So there was a big uh, education work that we had to do with the grower as well in, in a sense that uh, it wasn't about taking everything that they couldn't sell. Uh, we needed to make, to make sure that it was the right quality uh, as well. And so there was a lot of learning from our side. Um, uh, in terms of how to work with growers and how to explain uh, what we were trying to do. And uh, then we started gaining some traction and actually uh, acquiring more and more customers. And that's when uh, we spoke to a few uh, people and um, what started their own business. We said, uh, oh, you've got quite a few uh, customers. You could consider uh, raising investment. That wasn't really that, that's something that we had thought about at all. For us, the way of growing a business was a traditional way of uh, you're making money and then you reinvest that money. So uh, we didn't know many people who had started their own business. We didn't know the whole kind of angel and VC space. So there was a huge kind of learning uh, in terms of even though you were both in corporate finance, I mean, that's crazy. I thought you guys would be the first to know about that whole scene. Well, a different thing, isn't it? Like corporate finance is all about knowing your profit and loss account and your balance sheet and cash flow and so on. Whereas investment is a completely different ball game. It's about pitching your story. It's about having a grand vision. It's about really kind of selling your business to someone else beyond just the financials. I mean, financials was a strong point, but not the storytelling aspect. Okay, so you were in the corporate finance as in the corporate finance accounting side rather than the investment side. Correct. All right, okay, I can see how those two things are different. So you decided you were going to raise money. What happened then? Yeah, so then um, we worked with uh, um, uh, a corporate firm who could introduce us to angel investors because, uh, again, we are not from the UK. We don't have a network uh, at all here. So we had to kind of really build that network. And then um, uh, some of the entrepreneurs had done crowdfunding. Uh, and they said for a business like you, where you've got a very engaged community, then there's some value in getting your customers on the journey with you. And so we thought uh, um, that uh, it can be quite powerful uh, to have our community uh, really being uh, investors in Outbox as well. And so um, in um, uh, uh, 2018, mid 2018, we raised half a million through angel and crowdfunding. And that's when uh, we really started accelerating uh, our, uh, our traction uh, when we recruited uh, a marketing director who was one of our customers. At this point, when we raised crowdfunding, we were half a million in revenue one rate. We had probably a thousand customers, um, and we were just in South London. Um, and we were built, we had built a waiting list of two and a half thousand people, and we literally took that revenue run rate and the waiting list to say, look, we need money, but to expand to the rest of London and beyond, um, could you could you give us money? So I think that was the kind of first proof point, really, and big jump, which allowed us to a expand uh, operationally but also recruit people who knew how to do that in a sustainable way. Yes, well, 
Can I ask just one question there? Because someone actually sent me a voice message on Instagram recently saying nobody ever talks about how much money it costs of your own personal money putting into a business before you get to the stage where you're crowdfunding. And she said, no one ever talks about it on your show. And she said, it's an omission on all of your episodes that you're not asking people, did they have to invest their own money? Because she said, it's not necessarily a true reflection of, you know, if people have their own money, if they come from a background where they've, they've worked in corporate finance, they have their own money. Uh, you know, did you have to put some of your own money into this up front? Yeah, we did. We we put uh, 50,000 pounds in the business. And also at the same time, uh, Deepak was, uh, had quit his job, so he was fully uh, in the business and I was working. So uh, basically for two years, uh, we lived on my salary and on some of our savings. I think it's really worth, I think that's, it was such a great point that this entrepreneur uh, texted me during the week. I'm actually going to post it on LinkedIn with with the voice message because it is a great point, isn't it? Otherwise we give this impression to everybody that it's just really easy that you can bootstrap it. Bootstrapping is is different if you don't have 50,000 to put in and a, and a corporate finance salary, right? Um, so, so that's a good point. Okay, so, so you you crowdfunded, and then what happened? And then we were able to recruit uh, people. So, your marketing director. Yeah. So on on so we are we had um, our uh, current head of operation who joined as an intern very early stage and was doing a bit of everything, and then. Uh, we uh, recruited that marketing director and a marketing exec. And that's when we started doing uh, some proper kind of paid digital <laughs> marketing. And we, uh, what worked really well for us was door to door flyering. So because we're quite geo targeted, we, uh, we don't deliver everywhere. And at the start, we were only delivering in some parts of London. And then as we expanded in the whole of London and then started expanding to a few areas outside of London, we needed to make sure that we were uh, really quite focused in terms of our marketing. So old fashioned uh, leaf, leaflets through the door uh, works really well. Still works well. Yeah. Yeah, still it's still I can totally see why that would work, because when as a mum of three kids and managing a household alongside my partner, obviously, when something comes in the door, it goes straight into the kitchen with the local newspaper and the envelopes and you're you're working through your bills and you're thinking about the household. And I'm in that frame of mind about the shopping for the week and about the household, whereas if I see something for the house online, I'm not I might be in work mode or I might be in entertainment mode. I'm not necessarily thinking about managing the house, but I can totally see why that door-to-door piece might work for for something like Oddbox. Yeah, and that's something which uh, can be tracked uh, really well uh, as well in terms of the performance, uh, because we and uh, our team was doing a lot of work in terms of looking at uh, street by street, uh, the type of uh, housing, and targeting um, specific households. So it can be quite targeted as well. And one thing that we uh, didn't really believe in at the start was influencer marketing. So for me, I thought uh, it's a bit of fluff. Uh, all these uh, influencers, um, actually it worked really well for us. So uh, we realized that uh, in terms of building awareness and, uh, and some influencers are very much trusted in terms of what they promote. So initially, um, we did uh, a lot of just sending boxes to influencers uh, without paying any of the influencers. And we had a really good uh, rate of people 
uh, posting a story about hot box. So opening the box. So it's a good experience of opening the box. And um, uh, it's a product because we're about uh, food waste. It's a product that resonates with a lot of, uh, of uh, people and a lot of influencers. Yeah, absolutely. So you've grown the business to 32 million. That means that you are really good at certain things, right? So what pillars, what strengths, what capabilities do you think you have that have allowed you to grow the business to 32 million? And one of the things I'd love you to talk about, Deepak, is your relationship with the suppliers, because that's got to be one of the pillars, right? Absolutely. I think, yeah, so we work with about over 100 growers now and suppliers, um, cooperatives, essentially, who deal with multiple growers and then do the marketing for them, do the packing for them and so on, deal with supermarkets and so on. Um, and cl- clearly that relationship in, in, in the fresh produce world, it's all based on relationships and people knowing each other. It's not based on massive contracts between two entities and so on. Even today, people, growers work off, off programs on Excel spreadsheet, even between growers and retailers, it's just, there's no contract because it's so unpredictable uh, in terms of the nature of climate and so on. And what we've done is quite as soon as after we kind of completed the crowd, first initial crowdfunding round, we brought in a buyer who had worked in a fresh produce company. Um, and our first recruitment fact was working in a, for a, uh, for a grower, apple grower as well. So we, we brought in these people and we also had contacts. Um, we started building on network people who knew fresh produce um, growers. So what that meant is we started building these relationships and we still work with some of the growers that we used to work with uh, on day one and nurturing these relationships um, and proving to them that we could um, sell um, the produce that they couldn't sell. But more importantly, we could also help showcase the story uh, about them and the, and the struggles that they and, and problems that they go through whether that be climate or or Brexit in terms of labour challenges that they have, or even... You talked to me recently about a farmer that had to grow, was asked to grow loads of apples for the Queen's... Jubilee, yeah. Jubilee. Tell that story, because I think it's really worth highlighting the reality behind why you do what you do. Yeah. So a couple of years ago now, um, supermarkets and other players in the market approached growers, apple growers, to say, we've got the Queen's Jubilee. I think it was just before the Queen's Jubilee um, coming coming in, and we have to plant a certain variety to commemorate um, that event. And they decided on the name called Lilibet, um, clearly for the obvious reasons. And they, you know, the grower planted this um, two, two and a half years ago now. Um, but then since then, obviously, um, you know, circumstances changed with the Queen, but also the cost of living crisis hit, which meant, supermarkets when we've got to now rationalize our ranges and offer just the ones that we know have good margins. We don't want to uh, trial and experiment with new ranges. So grower uh, or grower John based in Kent, he got left with two hectares. He's planted two hectares of uh, these variety of apples, uh, which is going to be great, equate to about 80 tons of apples sitting in his um, cold store and the, the way these things work is you harvest them in September, October, and they um, you harvest the whole thing and you put them in controlled atmosphere stores and, and they last until April, March, April. Now, clearly, this has a lot of uh, implications financially for the grower in terms of energy costs. Energy costs have gone up 200, 300% over the last year um, for the grower. And he doesn't have this 
this promise that was made was no longer there. So the grower is looking at alternative avenues to sell his apples. It's a new variety. It's not people don't know about it. And he doesn't know what to do with it. So he approached us um, in February to say, look, you know, Oddbox has helped me in the past. Can you do something about it? So there's a certain volume that we could take for our boxes, that we, we put apples in our boxes every week during the season. Uh, but there's only so much we could take in our boxes. Um, and so we thought, what could we do that would take a big um, volume of these apples and then convert that into a shelf-stable product that would last for 18 months, two years? So we quickly uh, hit upon the idea of a, um, a, a juice that we then manufactured in about a month's time. And, uh, and, and it's, it's Oddbox's first foray into the world of consumer packaged goods. Um, and we created this juice now made from Lilibet apples. I love the name, Lilibet apples. I mean, you should put that on the packaging. Yeah, yeah, we we do mention the uh, the word, yeah, the variety of the apples, but yeah, I, I don't I don't think there are many Lilibet apple juices around, uh, whether in supermarkets or elsewhere. We I think we we think it tastes amazing. It sounds delicious. How do people get their hands on some? Yeah, so we recently launched um, an initiative called the uh, Odd Shop, um, which is literally. So we thought, look, beyond fruit and veg and reducing food waste at the farm level, clearly there's also waste in the supply chain. A number of food and beverage brands undergo that wastage, and that could happen with short shelf life, misprinted packs, um, and things like that, reasons like that. And we thought, could we then start um, expanding our rescue mission and go beyond the farm and go into the supply chain. Oh, clever. And we've started working with a number of food-based uh, food brands now um, to their uh, you know, surplus uh, varieties or surplus uh, volumes into our boxes where people can add on, add, add that on to, all, to their food and veg box. If you're the smart founder of a scaling brand, and you're inspired by what you're learning on this podcast, why not check out our Brand Growth Heroes Accelerator program? Over the past three years, our bespoke framework, tools, and coaching has helped over 80 founders of early stage scaling brands make decisions that have supercharged their growth. The results have been phenomenal. Things like first listings in national retailers and airlines, doubling of revenues, new star products or key hires, or even offers from all five dragons on the den. The program offers you a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. We love you, Fiona. And you've been an incredible mentor to us. And your program was wildly helpful. So if anyone is thinking of doing it, we really recommend it and don't think we would be able to get here without having done it. So if you want the framework and tools that will help you make decisions that will take your growth to the next level, go to brandgrowthheroes.com and then click online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots. Good for you, good for the planet, good made easy. So how does a brand get in touch with you? Is there criteria? I mean, do you take anyone? How does it work? Because I'm sure anyone listening to this would be thinking, this is great if I can get into the odd box boxes. What are the criteria? So, uh it needs to be uh, products which are at the risk of going to waste. So that's kind of our main criteria in terms of uh, that's why uh, we uh, exist. Yeah. So uh, uh, 
And then we look at you know, the, uh, the brown fit uh, in terms of uh, um, w whether that's something that we think our uh, community would like uh, to purchase. Um, and uh, then, uh, but we work with a lot of different brands. Uh, so we've worked with Montezuma, where we've uh, they've repackaged some broken slabs of chocolates uh, for us. Uh, we're um, uh, and uh, we've worked with different uh, plant-based uh, milk companies, uh, it can be snacks, uh, we can take a glass, we can take chilled. So there's quite a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that we can take. I think in, in a way from a customer standpoint, it's, it's a, one is we like to make it, make it easy for them to shop in one place. So they already buy their fresh produce from us. Could they buy, you know, an oat milk or could they buy a snack or could they buy a juice from us, making it easy for them to shop in one place, convenient. But the second is also we try and give them a competitive price compared to retail price. So we you know, try and secure a 20 to 25% discount over what it sells in retail, because obviously clearly we're trying to accelerate behavior change here. And for someone to switch their shopping behavior from Mercado, where they buy their plant-based milk, for instance, to Oddbox, um, which you know, just on the back of food waste is not probably not powerful enough um, and incentive enough for a number of our customers. Do you know what I'm thinking as you're speaking here is, and I think we said this yesterday when we were chatting on the phone, I wonder whether an Oddbox subscription, now obviously I can't get an Oddbox subscription because I'm on the Isle of Man and I think only chilled, that's chilled supply chain knowledge and capabilities only go so far when you have to deal with couriers and airplanes that go once a day when it's not foggy. Although that's a massive capability of yours, I think that might be a sticking point um, as it is for so many businesses here, unfortunately. I think the frame of reference for me as a mum in my weekly shop, right, or my monthly shop for Oddbox wouldn't be Ocado. It would be my monthly farm shop or my monthly artisan food shop. And I just think this is probably worth us thinking about, like, as a consumer, I wouldn't be thinking about this is going against my Oddbox shop or against my Ocado shop. This is like a comparison to my Ocado shop. So I buy really frugally in the co-op down the road because we've got three kids and we don't have time to go all the way into Douglas because if you live on the Isle of Man all the way into Douglas, it's literally three miles, but it feels like about 50. So we try and buy locally in our local co-op and there aren't very many cool brands available. So you spend your 80 quid a week, but then on top of that, you might spend 30 or 40 quid every two weeks on some really nice stuff. And I think that's where an Oddbox subscription would come in for me. It's like this really nice farm shop connection with the farmers, connection with the earth, connection with getting something back. So I don't know. I think that's worth us debating. Yeah, and that's something yeah. that's obviously uh, we're exploring. So uh, uh, opportunities. Um, COVID has been amazing for us in terms of uh, giving us uh, that uh, access to a much broader audience, uh, getting Outbox into a lot more households because people wanted things delivered to their doors. Uh, now uh, uh, that next phase of growth is about uh, exploring what else we can do. Are there other ways we can um, uh, help people shop in a better way and what we call a grower-led way. So uh, really starting with what's available, uh, with what's been grown, with uh, what's been produced and um, and making the most of what's available. Yeah, because there's no reason that you can't have anything in an odd box if it's at risk of going to waste, right? Yeah. It's a brilliant mission. So what's your vision for the business going forward? Overall, our vision, our vision statement, as it were, is a world where all food grown is eaten. Um, and what is what we're trying to do with that is we want to challenge the status quo and changing the way people consume. So we call 
or way of eating, a way of consumption, bro-led way. And what that means is that unlike any other food business or any other business who would base their um, operations on demand-led ways, so they would get the demand from customers and they would go to their suppliers or growers and say, grow this for me or produce this for me. Oddbox tries to flip that on its head by going to suppliers and growers and say, what do you have that you can't sell? So we are being grower-led in that instance. And it's for us to then figure out how do we manage the demand and how do we manage the, which is why we work with multiple apple growers, for instance, to sometimes fulfill the box. Um, but I think we, we we think there is value in in a, in a, in a world of like that where we live within our means and we live within the limited resources that we have and we don't go into this constant consumption, consumption feeds, you know, growth and kind of pattern because we are dealing with finite resources here. So ultimately, from a business and commercial standpoint, we would like more people to join us on that mission, um, on the wider mission. But we also understand that people are on a spectrum. Some people are already on that, uh, closer to that mission. Some people are starting on that mission and they want to do something. They see climate change. They see the problems that is caused by climate change, but they don't know where to start. So we would and, like to make yeah. that convenient for yeah. people. And that's that's where the fruit and veg box is uh, fine for a small amount of people. So raising a celeriac can be a challenge for somebody who's never bought or cooked a celeriac. However, um, being able to buy uh, an apple juice is less of a challenge because everybody drinks uh, apple juice. So that's where uh, we uh, we want to make sure that uh, our proposition is accessible to a broader audience, whilst the uh, the initial fruit and veg box proposition is a bit more limited in terms of uh, 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 the audience that uh, we can access. Okay, so in order to go to the mass market, I see the phase two is bringing products that people need in their everyday consumption and their weekly shop that they need rather than just the fruit and veg. And that's what you're doing with the Oddbox shop. You said something that really inspired me or really kind of created an emotional connection or engagement a minute ago, which was a world where everything, say it again. The world where all food grown is eaten. I find that so engaging and it kind of gives me those where you get the chicken skin prickles on your arms. It's really powerful. Your strapline at the moment is fighting food waste, isn't it? Yeah, we say we, well, strapline actually is eat good, do good and stay on, which talks kind of links to that and it's kind of our overall kind of messaging around. Earlier on, I asked you the question, what were the pillars of capability and strength that you have in your business that have allowed you to get to this growth of 32 million, which is obviously a really sizable business? And we've talked about the supply chain and the relationship with the growers. What other pillars of capability do you have in your business, Emily? So I, I think one thing that we uh, were spent a lot of effort and were really careful about at the start is the uh, customer experience and the customer service. So uh, uh, we want to make sure that uh, if somebody has an issue with their hotbox, then that we support them, whether it's uh, in receiving their hotbox, but also uh, it's in using their hotbox. So we're, from the start, uh, we've had a leaflet in the box, uh, which tells them where the produce are from, why it's been, uh, why it's in the box. We give them, so there's always a story about, um, whether it's, uh, a new story in terms of what's happening 
uh, in uh, in the news recently, which might affect the produce industry, whether it's about the weather, whether it's about a specific grower that we've started working with, whether it's about our hailstorm has impacted the growth of apples. Um, so education and awareness yeah. is a key part of our long-term vision. I mean, you, you could look at it, a lot, a lot, a lot of people might look at it as just as what's what house that have to do with a business, running a business. But I think it makes us, I, we feel, number one, for us, it's a legacy. It's a long-term, that's what, that's a legacy we and me and Emily want to leave in the world, uh, to, to have changed behaviors through educating people. Um, number two, I think it also differentiates us from just selling a product which says just food based on the tin. I think there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. And people really want to make lasting, meaningful change, then I think they need to understand about what happens behind the scenes on a farm. The, the trouble that a grower grows through, I mean, we all want to support growers and farmers and British farmers, but I think the moment when it becomes, things become a bit more expensive, we go, ah, oh, but but not that. We want, still want it to be cheaper. But I think there's a, somebody's paying the price. And I think it's important, it's our responsibility as a business to bring that story to life. In a, in, a, in a transparent, but also in a, in a meaningful, digestible way. It's not, no good to just give you some high-level stats and making it really difficult to understand. And I think it's also because we've we found that so fascinating. So fascinating. We've learned so much that uh, in some ways we want to share what we've learned. And uh, we also put a lot of recipes uh, in our boxes uh, to help people cook with the produce, because the worst which can happen is that uh, actually uh, something sits in their fridge and they don't use it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tony's Chocoloni talks about being an impact-led business. And really, you started this business because you wanted to make a change and have an impact. And that's why you're doing it. You're not doing it really to sell a product. You're doing it because you want to make a difference to the state of food waste in the UK and in the world. And that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and telling us the Oddbox story. Wishing you loads of luck in trying to make this consumer change across all of the UK. I have no doubt that you will. Emily, it was lovely to meet you. And Deepak, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the show. Likewise. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity as well to have a say. Thank you. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you. Good for the planet. Good made easy. Good made easy.